Amen. You can be seated. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use the Bible in front of the in the seat in front of you. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 35 and then through 52. Mark 10, 35 to 52. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and, told, and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the 10 heard of it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. This is God's word. Amen. <clears throat> so David set a new standard last week. Apparently, our sermons are supposed to be coherent. What's <laughs> We'll shoot for that this morning. <clears throat> I don't know why I'm really nervous. So I thought I would just come up here and say, hey, let's just talk about this as a family. Seems like a family talk is much easier than preaching a sermon. <clears throat> so God has uh, hopefully given us a word this morning. <clears throat> You're already there uh, in uh, Mark 10. So <clears throat> going to start out. You know, I wasn't sure what to title this. But I came up with some 
ideas. Maybe we could pick at the end if we have time. Two brothers and a blind man. Two pros and a beggar. One big question, two different answers. Ask not what your Savior can do for you. No? Okay. They get better. The disciples. Three blind men? Anyone? Or maybe more appropriately for us, or appropriate for us, what are you asking God for? Well, what are you asking God for? What's your number one request of God right now? I have a lot of notes here. I'll try not to be so tied into them, but I really want to say everything that's on here. What's your number one request of God? What are you asking Him for? What are you talking to Him about? <clears throat> have you ever been on a trip when you didn't know exactly where you were going? Been on some hikes with this group of men. Been lost before on hikes with groups of this hikes with this group of men. <clears throat> but most recently went to Nicaragua to go on vacation. And this the instructions for how to get where we were going were pretty specific. We would arrive in the airport, Liberia, Costa Rica. There would be a man there who would take us. He'll have a sign with our name written on it. His name, he will be called Clever. That was his name. And there he was. There was Clever. I was like, hey, how did you get your name? My mom thought it was a good name. I agree. <clears throat> and then the driver will drive you to the border, and then you will get out at the border, and that's where it kind of gets fuzzy. <laughs> like, then you will go into this little building, and they will take your passport. But you get in there, and you're like, is this really right? And then you will leave there, and then you will, uh, you will walk across. I'm probably messing this up, but then you'll walk across the border, and as you walk across the border, they'll want to check your passport about 17 times. Not really, but they'll want to check your passport. So we, we are walking across, and as we go, we're like, okay, we should be getting our passport. There's this little abandoned, looks like a, an old abandoned taco shack or something, and there's this guy, and we're like, is this legit? Anyway, we get over there, you go through there, and then you cross the border, and you go into another building, and then you go into another building, and it got really fuzzy. <laughs> Like, at one point we were like, is it this building or is it that building? And we didn't know. You ever been in that situation? Just not really sure where this is leading and where you're going, and are we really going to get to the next place that we're supposed to be? I ask you this question, if you've never been in that situation. Have you ever watched or been involved in a process when you didn't know exactly what was going on? One of the things that comes to mind is orientation. <clears throat> so when I was at the hospital... I changed units several times. And every time I would change, you know, there was nursing school, but then you get out of nursing school and then you, get, you start, maybe you start into your career. And there's some sort of orientation. Then if you change jobs, there's going to be another orientation. This happened to me several times at the hospital. I was like, I know I'm supposed to be working and functioning here. I just don't know what to do. Has anybody else ever been in perpetual orientation? I know some of you guys that are in the Air Force have had to kind of go through this like, oh, we're starting over again. I've got this many years in. 
and you're just kind of sidelined. It reminds me of starting a new job, orientation, training, preceptorship. <clears throat> it also reminds me of a concept that a, a friend of mine uh, told me about recently, that we move through these stages of competence. We start out with unconscious incompetence. Basically, you don't know what you don't know when you start a new job, or, or maybe when you're on a trip and you're not sure exactly where you're going to go. And then we move into conscious incompetence, meaning, oh, I know exactly what I don't know now. Now I know the knowledge deficit. Now I know what I don't know. And I'm going to have to work through that knowledge deficit. Then we move into, over time, conscious competence. We're aware and we know what we're doing. And then you move into a phase of unconscious competence, like muscle memory, like I bet I've done that 10,000 times, maybe 20,000, serving, throwing a football, riding a mountain bike. Well, let's say I don't have very good muscle memory on the mountain bike yet, but I'm working on it, <clears throat> trying to minimize the injuries <clears throat> there. But you work into an unconscious competence where it's just natural. We'll come back to that. I want to back up from where Vanya started to verse 32 through 34, and I want to read you something, <clears throat> and we'll talk. Let's go to 1032. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. Very interesting language there. They were amazed, and they were afraid. <clears throat> and taking the twelve again, he began to tell them, what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This happens multiple times, where Jesus knows their thoughts, and he just says, I probably should just say something here. And he knows exactly what they need to hear. Now, they may not have understood. They may not have liked it, whoever he was talking to, whether it's the Pharisees or whoever it was or the disciples. But he knew their thoughts and he knew what they needed to hear. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, and it happens many times. And you would have thought after this, after he tells them this, they're all contemplating and talking. They're amazed. This is crazy. Then they're afraid because we're connected to this guy that people want to kill. And so he tries to, you know, like let them in on what's going to happen next. You know, kind of like you go into this building, then you go into this building, then you go into this building, then you cross the border, and then you get in this van. And I will say, we didn't know what the second van driver was going to look like. So anybody could have picked us up in Nicaragua and taken us anywhere. So Jesus is trying to help them out a little bit. And you would have thought after that, good questions would have followed, right? Like they would have had some good questions after this information that he gives them. And I know you're like amazed and really impressed with all this and you're afraid because of this. So here's what's going to happen. You would have thought good questions would have followed. Not so. <clears throat> and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now, Matthew says that their mom came up too. Matthew says that their mom actually asked, and then they replied when Jesus started talking to them. Either way, the three of them are there. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? 
This is the first time this question is asked in this passage. What do you want me to do for you? Man, Jesus is asking them. So let's, let's look at their answer. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. One on the right, one on the left. You know, he had already told them that they were going to have seats, uh, the, the, the disciples. And what they were asking for was more than a seat. But it was a sharing of power. It was a sharing of prestige. It was a sharing of honor and to rule with him. And they were very much thinking about a physical kingdom that would be set up quickly. Let us sit at your right and left. And so we know the rest of the story. So when I read it, I can't help but think about these guys asking to sit with him in heaven. That's just kind of, I mean, I know the end of the story. He's going to be sitting on a throne, right and left, other seats. I, that's where my mind goes. That's not what they were thinking. And so he asked them a rhetorical question. He says, and Jesus said to them, you do, not, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? So he, he asked them a rhetorical question. They didn't have a good answer, but they answered anyway in verse 39. But really quickly, what is Jesus referring to? What's he talking about? Drink the cup and be baptized. Essentially, are you able to live the life that I'm going to live? And are you able to die the death that I'm going to die? Drink the cup of sorrows and be baptized with the blood and in the blood of death. Are you able to do this? Let me read you John Gill's exposition really quickly. Meaning, not that they should undergo the same sufferings he did and much less for the same end and purpose... He trod the wine press alone and bore the whole punishment due to the sins of his people himself. And of them, there were none with him to take apart, but that they should endure sufferings in some sort like to his, for his sake, as they both did afterward. We'll talk about that more. And their response to him. And they said to him, we are able. Let me just stop right there. The New International Version says, we can, they answered. The New Living Translation is probably the best. We'll save it for last. The Contemporary English Version says, yes, we are, exclamation mark, James and John answered. And then the New Living Translation, oh, yes, they replied, we are able. Listen, this is the sons of thunder. These guys were, these guys were, Intense. These guys were jacked up. They wanted to call down, what was it, lightning? Or what did they want to call down something to kill people in some town where they were like, you want us just to... <laughs> These guys were amped up. And so when he asked them, they're like, oh yeah, darn right. Yeah, we can drink the cup. Let's go. I think that's what we say now. And so he tells them, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
So what was their cup? We should, we should talk about that real quick. James, the greater son of Zebedee, brother of John, beheaded or stabbed by a sword by Herod Agrippa around 44 AD near Palestine. And not far from where he uh, was a local missionary to the Jews in Judea. His accuser, it was said, was converted by James, James's courage, and the two were beheaded together. And then we know John's story probably better. The most plausible theory of John's death states that John was arrested in Ephesus and faced martyrdom when his enemies threw him in a huge basin of boiling water, or he was, excuse me, boiling oil, or he was scheduled for it and was uh, delivered by divine intervention. We, we don't know. However it happened, according to the tradition, John was miraculously delivered from death. The authorities then sentenced John to slave labor in the mines of Patmos. Did you know that it was slave labor? I always thought of him just sitting on this island, just getting visions all the time. Slave labor on the Isle of Patmos where he received the vision and wrote uh, Revelation. The Apostle John was later freed, uh, possibly due to old age, and returned to Ephesus or in, to Turkey. And then it says here he died as an old man sometime after A.D. 98, the only apostle to die peacefully. I don't know how they know that, that he died peacefully. Maybe he did. But that was their cup to fill up the sufferings of Christ, as David pointed out last week. And then he continued on. He said, you will be baptized, verse 40, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. 41, and when the ten heard it, they became indignant at James and John. No surprise there. No surprise there. These guys are all jockeying for position. You think they hadn't all talked about it? These two are so bold and brash, they're just going to run up there and ask. And they brought their mom. I mean, okay. But Jesus is taking them on a journey. We'll talk about that more in a minute. It's a continuation of a paradigm shift that he's working on from Old Testament to New Testament, Old Covenant to New Covenant, 42 through 45. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be the first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he rebuked them, essentially, the disciples. See how it kind of... Okay. It's a paradigm shift. What is a paradigm Paradigm is an example or a pattern or an outstandingly clear or typical example or archetype. They had the Old Testament. They had a system. They had a paradigm. They had an example. And he is shifting that continuously, and that's what's going on here. I want you to listen with me now <clears throat> as I read as I read 33 through 34 and 42 through 45 without all of their <laughs> silly questions in the middle. He's talking to them. And somehow it's not computing. Now just listen to it like this. We take all of the questioning and commentary out of the middle. Jesus is heading to Jerusalem 
to go be killed. He's getting more and more pressure. They're having more and more threats. The people following him are afraid. And they're amazed. <laughs> like, it's like they can't stop looking. They can't leave him alone. They can't get away even though they're afraid. And he says to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, his message is so very clear and consistent. It's like he stopped talking here and you go down and he picks up again and he's saying the same thing. It's just a continuation of this paradigm shift and this message that he wants them to hear, us to hear. Here's the disciples' paradigm shifting. Unconscious incompetence. When they first met him, they didn't know how unfit they were to walk with him. <laughs> like, man, this guy's great. Conscious incompetence. And this happened in waves for them. Peter, put out your boat. Let's go out. Let's put out the boat for a catch. We've done this all night, but okay, whatever. And they catch this fish, and he's like, Lord, turn away from me. I am a sinful man. Conscious incompetence. Hey, 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 Jesus, how do these demons come out anyway? Those can only come out with prayer and fasting. Hey, guys... Somebody needs to go set Jesus straight. He keeps talking about dying. Like, well, how this kingdom thing is going to be set in place here for us if he's there. Conscious incompetence. They start realizing, oh, maybe we don't understand like we thought we did. And I really thought we had good, clear instructions to get across the border. And, and, and really we did. It's not a criticism anywhere. It's just that it wasn't that clear. I'm kidding. Conscious competence. The individual understands or knows how to do something. However, demonstrating the skill or knowledge still requires concentration. Where are you at in your walk with Christ? As they walk through. However, demonstrating the skill or knowledge and conscious competence requires concentration. We probably fluctuate in and out of that. And then there's unconscious competence. The individual has had so much practice with a skill that it has become second nature and can be performed easily. Do we ever see the disciples get there? Maybe. Maybe at times. Remember Peter? It's like, you're going to tell us to be quiet. We can't be quiet. We have to keep talking about Jesus. You know, do whatever you want. That's a paraphrase. But he got into unconscious competence. It just is what was coming out. All right. So let's move on. Same question, different outcome. Or was it? 46 through 49. 
And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho, his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. I read a really good, <laughs> I read a really good um, part of a Spurgeon sermon talking about a, it's a, basically it's just a big what if. But the thing that he did point out that I th- I'm going to read the whole thing or get into it, I think it was really good. If you want it, I'll share it with you. But what I'd like to point out here is that Jesus was being talked about everywhere. Many, many people were leaving their homes, their cities, and they were walking to go find him. This blind guy had no way to get there. Do you remember the paralytic whose friends took him? When we don't know how far they traveled. Does it say? Apparently, this guy didn't have anybody to help him get up and be mobile. He was a blind beggar. No resources. And no one to take him. But you know that he had heard the name Jesus of Nazareth by his response. And I want to tell you that, just think. And so Spurgeon goes, wonder what all he was thinking. Wonder if he had made the connection. I wonder if he had thought, I hope he passes by here. And so when this guy is crying out, thinking this is my answer, this is the solution, when this, is, when this guy is crying out, it's not Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. It's Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I mean, he's screaming. There's a crowd and he means it. And then blatant disregard for the voices of others who are like, hey, shh, shh. I would say the S word in here, but it's not appropriate. Hush, hush, they're telling him. He don't care, so he doubles down. And then they said, take heart, get up, he's calling you. Or, hey, chill out, okay, okay, all right, all right, all right, all right. He's calling you, go, 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 go. Calm down. They don't have time for this guy. He doesn't really care. And then in 50, and throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. So he threw down his cloak, which is his probably his mat at night or blanket at night. It's his shelter during the day. It's his clothes. He's a poor man, reckless abandon. I want you to see that response. 51? No, no, no. 50, sorry. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus in now 51. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? Same question, now in the singular form. Not do you, what do you guys want me to do? It's what do you want me to do? S- same exact. 
phrase. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. What kind of mercy do you need, my son? What kind of mercy do you need? What can I do for you? Have mercy on me. What kind of mercy? (laughs) Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Fifty-two, And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Why did Jesus quickly and willingly respond to heal Bartimaeus? I'll answer the question. I'll try to, because he knew what it would take in the heart of Bartimaeus to bring him to where Jesus, he, Jesus, wanted him to be. Or he knew what had transpired or what was transpiring in the heart of Bartimaeus. Just like he knew what was going on in the Pharisees' hearts, just like he knew what was going on in the minds and the hearts of the people who were following him on the road, he knew. Time out. Don't think that God is absent from your equation. He's very aware, aware, and he's very much there. I made that rhyme. He's very aware, and he's very much there. Like a tidal wave crashing over me, rushing in to meet me here, his love is fierce. Like a hurricane that I can't escape, Tearing through the atmosphere, his love is fierce. Jesus is taking us on a journey. Jesus was taking the disciples on a journey. Jesus was taking Bartimaeus on a journey. The beautiful thing is that no matter where Bartimaeus thought he was in his life, doesn't say how old he is, his journey had only just begun. Where are you on your journey? And again, what are you asking for? It's a continual paradigm shift. And we can also call it sanctification. I remember walking in life lost. Govan shared his testimony this morning. I couldn't help but think about Thank you, Lord, for prevenient grace. God intervening on our behalf before we come to know him with things that are happening that get our attention. You guys should corner Govin and make him share his testimony with you. And then we come to the point of irresistible grace. Like the disciples. To whom else... Would we go? You can resist only until you can resist no longer, as I've heard it explained. And then sanctifying grace, where we get into the sweet spot of true peace and true joy and true knowledge and true understanding. And then again, it's a continual paradigm shift. 
the right process makes the right product. My grandmother used to be a wonderful cook. I mean, she, she was a wonderful cook. But later in her life, she got to the point where she just decided that if you didn't have a certain ingredient, it was okay. And I mean, and she just was like, eh. <laughs> and so one time she made some kind of chocolate something like it, some kind of chocolate something with chocolate sauce. <laughs> and uh, she left out the sugar. <laughs> you know, chocolate's kind of bitter. And, uh, and, it, and it actually kind of, I don't want to gross you out, but kind of looked like beef tips, you know, like in some kind of brown gray. Anyway, you know, my Uncle Bobby, he ate a big old plateful of it, too. That's a different story, different sermon illustration. We're not going to go there right now. I just wanted you to know he's all right. <clears throat> but the right process makes the right product. You got to have all the ingredients. You got to go through all the steps. Or it's not going to turn out right. Do you know or realize what your most basic need is right now, believer, unbeliever? Do you know or realize what your most basic need is today, right now, what you need? Do you realize what your most desperate need is? Same question, phrased differently. Do you know what you need in order to be made into what God wants you to be, what you want to be, God does. He knows exactly what the process is. He knows exactly what the ingredients are. And if you would listen and follow, he is leading you and me. Matthew 7 7 through 11, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And to, him who, uh, and to the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or what person is there among you who when his son asks for a loaf of bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? So if you, despite being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask? Do you know what preparation, ingredients, and time is needed to make you into what you want to be and what God wants you to be? If you did, you'd ask for it. I'm certain. So let's think about this the right way. We're asking Him when we ask and we seek and we knock. And everybody's doing this. Everybody's asking, seeking, knocking. It just may not be directed toward Christ, but we're all asking, seeking, knocking all the time. Everybody's searching for something. We're asking for him and for his righteousness or his rightness or the root word there is right. We want to go the right way. We want to be right. We want things to be right. We're seeking for him or his righteousness or his rightness. We're knocking on the doors that we hope contain righteousness. We all are, every day. Have you found it? 1987, Bono. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. It's right here.
you know I couldn't preach a sermon without quoting some secular lyric. We got to hurry up. Y'all got to hurry. And we can trust that if we're asking for the wrong thing, he'll give us the right thing. He's so good and so kind. We can trust that if we're asking for the wrong thing, he'll give us the right thing anyway. How long is it going to take us to get there? That's the variable, right? That's what we don't know. And we can trust that if we're asking for the right thing, he'll give us the right thing. When Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? And he is asking, what's your response? What kind of mercy do you need? I'm going to go ahead and call the worship team back up here. And then I'm going to do my favorite game, agree or disagree. You can nod or you can just sit there. It doesn't matter. Put the answers on here because I thought y'all probably wouldn't be able to talk. If you ask God for what he wants to give you, agree or disagree, if you ask God for what he wants to give you, he will do it. Agree or disagree, if you ask God for what he wants to give you, he'll do it. Two scenarios here on the question asking. Ask for us and ask for it, or we can ask him and let him choose for us. Because we're going to ask for the wrong thing. The disciples did. We're going to ask for the wrong thing. And then what, whatever he gives us, we're going to have to trust he's given us the right thing. He put me here for a reason. I'm in this situation for a reason. I'm at this job for a reason. I'm in this family for a reason. This circumstance happened for a reason. I'm going to have to trust him that he's given me the fish. He's given me the loaf of bread. Get to the place where you're willing to let God choose for you and then be obedient to walk it out. And a side note for consideration as we get ready to close. Let's just listen to Bartimaeus one more time in his plea. Son of David. You want me to yell again? I probably shouldn't do that. Son of David. He's saying, Messiah. He has connected the dots. Messiah. The Messiah was the fulfillment of the law and prophecy and Savior of mankind from sin. He says, Messiah, Savior. From, Savior from sin, destruction, and devastation. And then he says, Rabbi or Rabboni, which was only said of the religious leader in Judaism, like the president of the great Sanhedrin. Supreme teacher. Messiah, supreme teacher, and then he called him Lord. Curios, a person exercising absolute ownership rights. You see the posture of his heart? What would happen if Jesus said, no, you don't, you don't need to see? Who knows? We don't get to know. We know the posture of his heart was right, though. And if he is Messiah the Savior, and if he is the supreme teacher, 
If he is Lord, we can trust him for the first time or the I want you to consider what are you asking for? Are you asking? And I want you to consider that you can trust him no matter what you're asking for. And I think the point is that we continue to ask. We continue to follow. We continue to seek and trust him. Let's pray. We'll close.